Uh, first of all, Nehemiah. Um, we are, uh, for the benefit of visiting with us, we are looking at the middle chapters or the second half of Nehemiah. Uh, the first half of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall. And then the second half from chapter 7 on is about rebuilding the people. And that's been the big theme that we've been thinking about uh, for maybe four weeks or so uh, over the past couple of months. So we're reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, at the end of the chapter, verse 38, which really ties in <coughs> with chapter 10. It reminds us that the divisions in the Bible were done by man and are not always in the best place. Uh, so chapter 9, verse 38 uh, let's read there. We're page 495. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. And then we have a list of priests uh, in terms of priestly families from verse 2 to 8. We have a list of Levites, verses 9 to 13, in terms of their priestly families. And then a list of the chief leaders or the heads of families from verse 14 through to verse 27. And so we pick up our reading again at verse 28. The rest... Of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, <coughs> temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all those now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath. To follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. And let's turn now to the Gospel of John in the second half of our Bibles. John 17. The Christ who had been anticipated in the Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament. John 17, here he is just before his crucifixion, praying uh, uh, for uh, his, um, for the church and praying particularly at this point for his disciples. So we're page 1085, John 17 and verse 13. I am coming to you now, that's to the Father. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Amen. Over the past few months, we have been journeying uh, together with the church of the 5th century before Christ. Uh, we have seen uh, the Lord's word impact and change their lives uh, as Ezra and others read and preach it to them. And as a result, their worship is now in spirit and truth. Their confession of sin has a breadth and a depth to it, and their relationships to one another and to the world is undergoing significant change. We want to turn then this morning to Nehemiah chapter 9, where we take up again the story of God rebuilding his people in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9, and we've reached verse 38, and this morning we're going to be looking at the section through to chapter 10 and verse 29. Page 495, if you're using the Bible picked up on the way in. In this section, the church makes a New Year covenant with the Lord. Remember, it's the seventh month. Um, that is the first month in the civic calendar. The seventh month was the religious calendar. So it's a civic New Year. A very similar situation to what we are in. And they're entering into this covenant with the Lord. A covenant is a solemn promise to love and serve the Lord. And attached to it is uh, a, an invitation uh, for the Lord to judge. It's what's called a curse of the covenant. If they should deliberately and willingly break it. The purpose of this covenant, why is it? That Ezra, and with the encouragement of Nehemiah, uh, leads the people into a covenant. This kind of solemn commitment with God at this time. Well, the purpose of covenants in scripture, covenants that men and women and young people make with God, they're always, first of all, in response to the covenant of grace. They can never be in their own. There always are response 
to what God has done and is doing for us and in us through Christ. So the response to the covenant of grace. But they're also then designed where we find them in scripture to consolidate the people in their renewed commitment to the Lord. So they're a kind of, we might say, extended Lord's Supper or a kind of written Lord's Supper that has long-term aspirations and uh, priorities for them as the people of God. And so the intention here is to make it easier for the people through this covenant to press on with the Lord in their renewed commitments. And the flip side of that is that it's designed to make it more difficult for them to fall back into their old sinful habits and ways. That's covenant renewal as we find it in scripture. So we read here in verse 38, and because of all this, notice the connection with what's gone before. Everything we've thought about, chapter 8, chapter 9, confession of sin, worship of God uh, in a new way, and a change in their relationships with one another and with the world. Because of all this, we make a sure covenant. Um, It's not the usual word for covenant, but it is a word which has the same meaning. That's why uh, it may be in italics in your Bible, because it's indicating that. And write it, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. So it's written, uh, it's made, written and sealed. Uh, verse 10, or verse 1 of chapter 10, those who place their seal on the document were. So this, what we have here in chapter 10, is one of various Old Testament covenants. Uh, one of various occasions when the church makes a covenant with the Lord. And this practice, we believe, is still relevant for the church in the New Testament. We are to respond to the covenant of grace. Not just personally and individually, but there's times when it is right for the whole church, a whole congregation, and sometimes a whole denomination to respond because the Lord has been dealing with them in terms of particular sins and leading them to repentance and to new priorities, uh, rediscovery of old truth. And so we find this practice, um, interestingly and significantly, arising at the time of the Reformation, during the 16th century. The church was being reformed from old sinful practices and being brought into new ways. And so they entered into covenant with God in continental Europe. We find it adopted in the 17th century by English Puritans. That was, um, they were, again, as the name suggests, Puritans. They were seeking to reform the church and to purify her from some of the Ongoing issues that were sinful in God's sight and according to his word. The practice of making covenant exists today in Reformed Baptist churches in the United States of America. 
Some of you will know of Al Martin and Trinity Baptist Church in New Jersey. You walk into the uh, foyer of their building and there they have a member's covenant that was entered into at the time when the church was founded. Um, and then, uh, of course, ourselves, we are the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And we were nicknamed the Covenanters. The Covenanters. Or if you're up in North Antrim, the Coveys. Or the Wee Coveys, as they were called, referred to. Um, why? Because um, this branch of Presbyterianism has for 450 years believed and practiced this principle. That there are times when it's right for us to renew our commitment to the Lord uh, and to do that on paper and to sign it. The last time that happened was 1989-1990. And I think there's a principle that you see in the Old Testament and remember it's the long history of the church. If you want to see the church in the long term you've got to look at the Old Testament. And I think you see a practice there that was renewed Quite often in every generation, because every generation had new challenges. And I personally believe that we've an urgent need as a denomination to renew our covenant with the Lord in the light of all the things that are happening around us in society today. We're in a different society from even 25 years ago. I went into the ministry. I could never have anticipated that the issue of same-sex marriage would be number one issue in society facing the church. So, that's a little aside. Let's come to Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning, which we want uh, to look at. And it'll help us to inform our thinking about covenant renewal and, and what it means and what it would mean for us as a congregation if we were to do it. What it would mean for us as a denomination if our whole church was to do it. So, First of all, verses 1 to 27, just to that you understand the purpose of these verses. They record the names of the leaders who signed the covenant. It's just a record. It's a historical record. Nehemiah 1 mentions Nehemiah and Zedekiah. Nehemiah is the civil leader. Zedekiah is probably his subordinate or his assistant. Then verses 2 to 8 uh, lists 21 families of priests. They're the spiritual leaders. Verses 9 to 13 names 17 families of Levites. The Levites, a bit like the deacons under the elders in the New Testament church, the Levites were under the priests to assist the priests in the Old Testament church. And then in verses 14 to 27, you have um, a record of 44 leaders of the people. So these are big family clans and somebody signs on behalf of their big family circle. Let's say Ronnie behalf of the Lockridge clan or whatever. That's the kind of principle that's happening here. So, and then verse 28 states that those who have signed in each category, whether priest, Levite, or the head of a family or household, that they've done so on behalf of the whole body of priests and Levites and people. Okay, so that's the dynamic of the covenant here. So that brings us then to the substance of the covenant, uh, which is recorded in verses 28 to 39. There's two main parts, verses 28 to 31, 
uh, and verses 32 to 39. The theme of verses 28 to 31 is separation. It's about separation. How they are going to separate themselves from and to. From what? To what? Um, And then verses 32 to 39, uh, the theme is their commitment to the house of God, to the church of the Old Testament. So you can see where we're going over the next couple of weeks. We're not going to cover all of this today. Um, What we're going to do this morning is uh, look uh, at uh, the verses um, in chapter 10. Look at the verses 28 to 29. um, And then uh, next week uh, we will continue uh, looking at the following verses, 30, 31. And the theme both times is separation. Separation. So, um, we want to think about how this word produced covenant, because that's what's driving this covenant making. It's the word. We want to see how this word produced covenant uh, with the Lord emphasizes separation. It emphasizes separation. So, um, chapter 10, verse 28. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 2, you find the same kind of statement without any um, uh, detail. And they stood and confessed their sins. Sorry, the first part of the verse. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. There are three things we want to see this morning uh, briefly. First of all, separation from the unbelieving world around them. Separation from the unbelieving world around them. comes out in verse 28, the second part of it. It says, and separated those who had separated, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding separated themselves from the peoples of the land or the peoples of the lands. During the earlier rebuilding of the wall, uh, Nehemiah and God's people were continually threatened by others outside of the community of God's people. They were threatened by those living among them in the land. And they were threatened by those living around them in neighbouring lands. Let me just give you the references that show this in the early chapters of Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, verse 9, verse 20. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. And Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. And in fact, in some cases, those this whole sections there dealing with the opposition that they experienced from those who were not Jewish people living in the land and those neighbors and neighboring lands. And of course, the most notorious among them was Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, he's from Ammon, and Geshem, the Arab. And then there's a reference to the Samaritans, that's the people of Samaria, and there's the reference to the Ashdodites, which would be a Philistine um, people by extraction. So, that's what they live among. 
And now through Ezra's ministry, as they are being built up as God's people, part of the process of that is facing up to their calling. Calling we find in Leviticus. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is part of their calling, to be separate from the peoples. They are the chosen, redeemed people of God in the Christ who will come, redeemed in the Christ who will come. And they are to show that. So what we have here in this chapter is a small believing community recognizing their calling to live, work, worship and witness to the Lord in the context of a wider unbelieving world. That's what we have. A small believing community facing up to what it means for them as the Lord's people to live in the context of a wider, unbelieving world. Now, is that not precisely our calling? Is that not precisely your calling and my calling still in the New Testament? The Lord's purpose for his people has not changed. It is that we would be a holy people, a separate people, a people <coughs> devoted to him, a people who are separate from the unbelieving world around about them. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's lots of wrong formats that this takes. And uh, we can't, in a one sermon, uh, uh, deal with this exhaustively. We will probably, I think, pick up on it again on Wednesday evening and talk about it a bit further as we've been doing in the Wednesday evenings. But let's put it like this at this stage. Christ does not call those whom he saves to have nothing to do with unbelievers. Some Christians think that. Some churches teach that. Uh, and um, they withdraw and the only people they interact with are their own kind, other Christians, their own denomination. Well, Christ does not call those whom he saves to have nothing to do with unbelievers. You cannot read the scriptures and come to that conclusion. Equally, however, Christ does not let us merge into the world so that we do not differ from unbelievers. And sadly, there are churches and there are Christians and that's the position they have. They just merge in. And the only time they're distinctive, um, to whatever degree, is when they meet together on the Lord's Day. I do church today and tomorrow I just, I'm in the world and I live like the world, I talk like the world, I speak like the world, I act like the world. Well, Christ does not let us do that. We cannot merge into the world so that we do not differ from unbelievers. And we'll come in our third point to think about a practical illustration in the life of Christ himself of how he avoided those things. 
Rather, what does Christ do then? If he doesn't call us to withdraw from the world, to have nothing to do with it, if he doesn't call us to merge into the world so that we're, we're like it, what does he call us to do? He calls us to be separate from the world. Separate not um, that we've got a dress in a particular way, leaving aside the matter of morality and dress. You appreciate that that's a given and avoiding immorality and dress. But um, it's, it's not separate in those sort of things or, you know, I, I can't shave because, well, Christ had a beard and I've got to have a beard. Uh, it's not those kind of superficial things. Christ calls us to be separate from the world in terms of its values. What does the word value this morning? It values the material. It lives for the material. Its whole eggs are in, in the one basket, the basket of the material things. Well, um, that's not how we're to live. Um, its values with regard to sexuality um, uh, are totally different from those of Scripture. Uh, the world um, believes there should be no restraint in sexual expression. So you don't have to... Um, restrict the sexual relationship to within marriage, which is what the Bible teaches. No, you can um, have a sexual relationship with somebody outside of marriage. Um, the the world has a different view with regard to adultery, uh, to a divorce. Um, the Bible has very narrow grounds for divorce. The world has very wide views with regard to divorce. Um, the world has uh, a view now that is very popular of that someone of the same gender can marry someone, uh, marry their equal. The Bible clearly says that is wrong. God made us male and female and made the male and female body that they can join together and become one. So there's separation of the world's values in terms of sexuality and sexual identity. Separation from the world's attitudes. What's the world's attitude this morning is? Well, it's look after number one. And it's if somebody offends you, you give back as good as you get. Well, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says to me, I have a responsibility to my brothers. I have a responsibility to my family. Uh, the scriptures that we're saying to the boys and girls teaches us that we're not to give back as good as we get. There are many times we turn the other cheek. And we're to repay evil with good. So that's the kind of way in which Christ calls us to be separate from the world's values and attitudes and goals and priorities and conduct in a way that we are salt that arrests decay and in a way that we are light that penetrates darkness. That's what it means. That's our calling. Separation from the unbelieving world. And so let's ask ourselves this morning, am I separate from the world in its values, in its attitudes, in its goals, in its priorities, in its sexual orientation and ideas? Am I salt that is arresting decay. Do people are people restrained in their speech? 
Are people restrained in the kind of stories they will tell? Are they restrained in their behaviour because I'm among them? That's what it means. Am I penetrating the darkness? Am I saying to people, naked we came into the world, naked we will leave the world. What would it profit you, fellow worker? Don't put it this way. But what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? That's being light. So, separation from the unbelieving word. Let's notice then, secondly this morning, separation to the word of God. Separation to the word of God. We're looking now at verse uh, 28. Um, and the second part of it, uh, the end part of it, uh, separate themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. To the law of God. And we, remember we saw law can be in its widest sense, scripture in its entirety. Uh, we saw that in an earlier study. Um, and uh, comes out again in verse 29 where they talk about and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses. An oath to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. Notice that little word, all. Not some. Not a few. Not many. But to do all. So here's a separation to the word of God. And I think it is striking the way it is put here. They did not separate to themselves. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. They didn't separate to themselves to become a holy huddle. That pulls down the shutters. That associates only with its own to keep evil out. That is a danger Christians frequently face, or religious people frequently face. At work, so there's another Christian, or somebody who goes to church. And so they're the one that you sit beside. They're the one that you always talk to at coffee time. And you cut yourself off from the other 10 people or 20 people who have no interest in God and don't go to church. Uh, it's a danger that young people face at school. Yes, be involved in script union. Yes, make that a priority. Always your Christian friends are the most important, but have non-Christian friends. Don't isolate yourself that you can't interact with your own peers. Um, it's... And it's striking here, they didn't separate themselves to their own kind. Um, it's a danger, I think, the church has fallen into at times, to associate only with others of like mind. In fact, I believe, and it's my own personal understanding of the history of the RP Church, that is what we did in the first half of the 20th century. Um, uh, from about 1880 
and onwards, there was a movement called liberalism or modernism that was coming from Germany into the church in Ireland, coming in through the theological colleges in particular. Uh, and it didn't, uh, it wasn't coming into our college, um, but other colleges. And, and so men were coming out in the ministry, trained in this. And it meant that you said, well, we can't believe that the Bible is all the word of God. We can't believe that Jesus really did do miracles. When he was in walking in the water, the water wasn't really deep water. He's just walking in shallow water. And it looked as if he was walking in water. That was the kind of approach that was being taken to the Bible. So what did our church do? Did it separate itself to the word of God? And say, here is scripture and argue from scripture. You are wrong in what you're teaching. And you're wrongly handling and wrongly dividing the word of God. No, I believe that what our church did was it withdrew into our church buildings. And we pulled down the shutters. And we said, we don't agree with that. And we don't want that in here. And the way not to have it in here is to pull down the shutters and to keep the world out. And so I think my understanding of the history of our church in the 21st century and I realise I'm someone who's come into the church, uh, is that we withdrew and we cut ourselves off from other Christians, from other churches. We cut ourselves off from the world. And you see, we separated ourselves not to the word of God, but we separated ourselves to ourselves. <coughs> and that's never right. And it's never healthy. And it results in the church becoming inward looking. It results in the church becoming defensive in her stance. It results in the church becoming sometimes conceited in her mindset. We have not given in to that. Um, it results in the church being absorbed with her own identity. And consumed with her own survival from within. It results in the church being restricted in her fellowship. And she ultimately becomes distorted in her isolation. And ultimately then out of touch with the world in which she exists. Now I may be overstating the case. And if I am, that's not my intention. But those of you who are older will be able to help us in midweek and Wednesday evening as to whether there is any truth in that in terms of the history of our denomination. You see, the mistake we made, we separated to ourselves, not to the word of the Lord. And you see, we're to stand before the world. We're to stand valiantly valiantly as the pillar and ground of truth. We're to stand unashamedly. That's important in the issues that are facing the church today that we separate ourselves to the word of God not to ourselves because if we do that we're condemning ourselves to all those things which you think, by the way, you see in the Pharisees. 
And they were a movement that wanted to separate it. They wanted to keep apart from some of the sins of their day and their society. That was a good motive, but they went about it the wrong way. And all those twisted things that we see in them, uh, that Jesus had to expose. So, under Ezra's covenant, back to verse 29, they joined to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God. Scripture. Scripture. That's the solid ground. Because when you grapple with Scripture, you always come to Christ. But when we withdraw to ourselves, it is we are so prone to lose the focus on Christ. And so there's this separation to the scriptures, to what Moses revealed. And I believe that in the first five books of the Old Testament, which is what has particularly been referred to here, everything that unfolds in Christ and the New Testament is there in embryonic form. There's nothing missing. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a priest. He's going to be a king. He's going to be born of a woman. And he's going to rule the nations of the earth. Uh, he's going to die he's going to suffer all of those things are there Um, sola scriptura scripture alone one of the five solis there were latin phrases sola scripture is a latin phrase one of the solis of the reformation separation but it was always separation on Scripture alone. Not our tradition, Reformed Presbyterian over 450 years, or Carrick Fergus Reformed Presbyterian Church over 13 years, because we can establish our traditions and they can become as resolute and as deep-seated over 13 years as those over 450 years. So... Uh, scripture, not tradition, not culture, not opinion polls, is to shape our beliefs and conduct. So here's our application. Let us make sure in our lives as individuals and in our life corporately, what we believe and what we do is rooted in and grounded upon the word of God. It alone is timeless truth. It alone is for all ages, for all peoples, of all of both genders, and of all social and political and cultural background. It is timeless, always solid ground to stand on. And that brings us finally this morning, and this is a briefer point, And it's now to illustrate what I've said in the first two points because I was conscious I don't have an illustration here in this. Separation is according to the example of Jesus. It's not only unto Jesus, which is what the scriptures will do, and it's what uh, we have to do in the world unto Jesus, separation to him, but it's after the pattern or after the example of Jesus. Now think about it for a moment. Think about his earthly life. He separated himself 
from the unbelieving world, did he not? He never committed adultery. He never was involved in break of the breach of the Sabbath day. Um, so here's someone. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, he didn't. Um, he wasn't a tax collector or a sinner. Those two big groups of his day. He separated himself from the world. Um, uh, he separated himself from the sins of the world, the values of the world. Those things that we talked about, the attitudes. Not just actually, and this is the point, not just those of the unbelieving world, but also of the religious world. Because Christ was as critical of those who held to the Old Testament scriptures as he was of those who wrongly held and wrongly interpreted the Old Testament scriptures. He was as critical of them as he was of those who didn't even open the scriptures and never went into a place of worship. So do you see how he's separating himself from the world, the unbelieving world and the religious world of his day? But here's the point. He was separated from the world, but there was nobody more involved in the world. Was he not the one who was called the friend of tax collectors and sinners? Was he not the one who was accused of being a wine-biber and a drunkard and a glutton? Because where was he found? He was found among the sinners, among the world of his day, engaging with the world of his day, bringing the message to the people of his day. And he didn't stand apart from the religious world of his day either. He engaged intensely with the scribes and the Pharisees and their wrong understanding of the scriptures. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, is about. Exposing their wrong understanding of scripture. So, separation from the believing world. Jesus is an example. He was in the world, but not of the world. And we read John chapter 17 very deliberately this morning because there in John 17, he sums it up and he puts it this way. Um, he says, as you sent me into the world, as you sent me, Father, I also have sent them into the world. Do you see what he's saying? I am the example. I'm the pattern of how to go into the world. And so how did Jesus walk this tightrope? How did he walk this tightrope? The, avoiding the sins of the world as a man? Exposing the religious life which he disapproved of and which was not honouring to God? Um, and yet be fully involved in the world. How did he do it? Well, he did it through our second point. You read and he, in Isaiah and he talks about morning by morning, I'm awakened by your word. That's Christ. Every day he got out his Bible. Every day he got out the Old Testament scriptures and he searched those scriptures to find the will of God for his life. 
That's how he discovered his vocation. It was through the word of God. It wasn't that there was some one day there was a blazing light in the sky. He read the scriptures and he discovered, I am the one spoken of in Isaiah 53. He's going to be bruised for the iniquities of my people. And it was that same word that he discovered, I am to avoid the sins of the world as a man. I'm not to sin. I'm not to fall into the sin of Adam. But also, he saw how he used to be engaged in the world as a holy man. So, separation according to the example of Jesus. There's a little bracelet that went around. It was very popular maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, still around, I think. WWJD. What would Jesus do? Now, it's maybe a little bit trite in some issues, but there's a lot of truth summed up in that little bracelet and those little letters. And how many situations we would immediately find help if we were to say, what would Jesus do in our unbelieving world today? How would he relate to the homosexual? How would he relate to the same-sex marriage? How would he relate to the religious world of our day? What would he say? What would he do? And we know what he would say and what he would do because we have it in the scriptures. So we, if we are going to be those who have this biblical separation, it's got to be from the unbelieving world, It's got to be to the word of God and it's got to be according to the example of Jesus. And that's a lifetime's work to get that right. And we'll not always get it right. But that is part of being the Lord's people. And a word-produced covenant, a word-produced godly people will have separation as one aspect of their living we'll come back to it next week and look at it a bit more in the next verses let's pray together Lord God we draw near to you now and we thank you for your word to us today we find it deeply challenging and searching in our hearts and in our lives we thank you for the Old Testament pattern that we see here in Nehemiah's day And we pray that you would grant us the grace to know how to separate from the world in our day. How to separate from its sins, but yet to be the salt and the light of the world. We thank you that we have in the example of Jesus, the perfect man, the one who perfectly achieved that. And Lord, we pray today too that you would help us to separate not to ourselves, not to religious people, not to church people, not even to other Christians, but to separate always to the word of God. Lord, keep us from becoming uh, the kind of things that uh, people become when they just separate themselves to themselves. We pray that you would cause us, O Lord, to have an influence for you in our day and generation, in this town, in this community, 
Show us how we are to do that. Help us to continually immerse ourselves in the life of Jesus and how he lived. And so then to be able to answer in any given situation the question, what would Jesus do now? What would he say now? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.